I'm wearing a headband here, I better make some room for myself. And I got the you know, matching sneakers, feeling pretty good about my jogging today. All that is to say that today we are going to take a slow jog together this morning through some hot topics like the death penalty, slavery, sex outside of marriage, orphan care, lawsuits, fist fights, property, the poor, loving our enemies, and worship. That's what it is, isn't it? Yes, we're going to be looking through God's law today. And you're going to need your bulletins with your sermon notes in there. So if you didn't get one of those, would you raise your hand and Mark will get you one of those? All right, Mark, thank you for your help today. We could obviously spend a lot more time, uh, like do a deep dive on each of those topics that I just mentioned. But we're not. Today we're going to do a slow jog through them all. And now I can take off the headband if you're all tracking with me. <laughs> I wouldn't leave that on the whole service, but it's not really necessary. Okay, so we're in our Exodus sermon series. The title of that series is Moving the World to Freedom. We've been going through all kinds of things with the, with the Israelites. We're in the wilderness now. If you were here last week, it was an exciting sermon on the Ten Commandments. The title was Step Free. You're now set free from slavery in Egypt, but now how to live free. And God began gaining his law last week with the Ten Commandments, which is the foundation of all the rest of the laws to be given. And do you remember, we gave a number, how many Old Testament laws are there? When you count them all up, does anybody remember that number? 613. Very good. I did hear it back there. Very good. 613 laws total. Now, that's a lot, isn't it? I want to begin with an age-old question today that I believe that anybody who picks up the Bible or any, anybody who comes to faith in God wants to start learning about the Word and about God comes to this question, all of us. Here's the question. Why don't we obey all of the Old Testament laws anymore? Either God's laws, right? Have you ever heard somebody kind of criticize your faith because you eat shellfish? That's one of the laws. You shall not eat shellfish. Um, this is Father's Day, and one of my favorite traditions, and Sarah's been doing this for me for years, uh, every Father's Day we eat steak and lobster, crab, or shrimp. I mean, I love that stuff. And that's, uh, does that mean that I'm breaking God's law every Father's Day? <laughs> I don't want to do that, right? So how do we know what laws in the Old Testament that we come to uh, are for today and which are not for today? And how can we tell? I'm going to begin today with that right there. And it's on the top of your sermon notes. What you see is that there are three basic categories of law in the Old Testament that God gave. And it's from God. And they were for a very specific purpose, very important but there were three types, and this is extremely helpful for us to understand the three types and how to determine what's for today, what's not, but how, how good even the ones that aren't for us today are for us today. So here we go. The first one is civil laws. <clears throat> civil laws. We have lots of civil laws today. These govern the nation, the society. They clarify good behaviors and bad behaviors. They give punishments for crimes. Civil laws. That these were given to govern the nation of Israel as a nation. 
Have you ever had to ask a neighbor to turn down the music late at night? Or maybe to have them um, put their dog away that's been jumping up, biting your guests or anything? Okay, if you've ever had to do anything like that, you understand. Here we have the young nation of Israel out in the wilderness, two to three million people living on top of each other. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be a lot of conflict. So God's law is a gift. The civil laws are a new nation. They need civil laws. They teach you how to have law and order. That's a gift. That's a good thing. The second set are ceremonial laws. These are laws about worship, about holiness, about clean things and unclean things before the holy God. Uh, it, de it describes various kinds of animal sacrifices, temple practices, and feasts. They show how costly it is to bridge the gap between a holy, all-powerful God and sinful, unholy humans. You can't just go in pre the presence of a holy God. He makes that very clear. So there's ceremonial laws, which prepares us for worship and enables us to have a relationship with God. These are good things. And of course, they all, here's what we, we know now that the Bible has been finished. We know what happens. All of those ceremonial laws were fulfilled in who? In Jesus, like I said, there's that huge gap that we can never bridge across on our own without the righteous one, Son of God, who lived all the laws perfectly, giving us access and a relationship with God and salvation and new life. That's ceremonial laws. And we, can, we don't follow those, but we sure do glean a lot from them as we're going to today. The third set of laws are the moral laws, and these are the ones we still follow today because they're moral laws. It's what God declares is right and what's wrong. The Ten Commandments, for instance, nine of the ten were moral laws. One was a ceremonial law. Remember which one? The Sabbath. The Sabbath is not something that we follow anymore these days. It's our day of worship because that was a ceremonial law and that was fulfilled in Jesus. Now here's the key. <clears throat> Civil and ceremonial laws for Israel were time-bound and for the nation of Israel. Moral laws are right and wrong, and they are for all people of all time. So circle moral law on your notes if you'd like to, because those are still for today. as you come across them in your reading of the Old Testament. Even though we don't follow ceremonial and civil laws today, we get a lot of knowledge about God, of what's important to him, and how to apply those things in life uh, even today. So let's take our slow jog through dozens of laws as we pick up in Exodus chapter 20, verse 22. After the Ten Commandments, now, you know, the Bible's off to the races, giving another almost 600 laws, and we're going to go through dozens of them together today. Again, we could dwell much longer on any of them, but we're not. We're going we're gonna to jog through them. And my objective today is for us to start, you know, to really shape and refine our ethics and our discernment, our knowledge of God, but especially our love for God's law. To join all the biblical writers who, who proclaimed, I love the law of God. And you're going to see why. You're going to see what a blessing it is to know the law of God. It's how it helps us know God, worship God, love God, know how the world 
around his works know how to love it and how for our society to thrive in the best of ways. God's law is a blessing. So let's start our slow jog through them with where it starts here, God's laws of worship. Chapter 20, verses 22 through 26. What better place to start than God's decrees, his commands, his law, his design for our worship of God. Verse 22, just to kind of jump back in from where we were last week, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked to you from heaven. If you were here last week, you remember that the Ten Commandments, Moses has been the mediator between the people and God. But God says, Moses, you go back and join the people because I am going to speak from the top of the mountain the Ten Commandments. Remember that? And he spoke the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And at the end of all that, remember what the people did? They almost killed them. And they were terrified. And they said, oh, we got it, God, but please only talk to, to us through Moses from now on. And so here's what we see right here. So the Lord is talking to Moses again. I just want to make that transition. And he says, okay, Moses, tell the people, you've seen for yourselves that I have talked to you, with you from heaven. And then here's all the authority of God giving his law through Moses. And here's where it starts, verses 23 through 26. Right off the bat, he says, You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. Silver and gold. Hold on to that. Verse 24, An altar of earth you shall make for me instead. And sacrifice on it your burnt offerings, your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. Hold on to that. In verse 26, you shall not go up by the steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. So what's going on there? We have three commands here, ceremonial law, three commands. First, no idols. One of the Ten Commandments. But he's going to, com he's going to continue to refine this and repeat this because it's so embedded in the Israelite people who have spent their lives in Egypt where worshiping idols was their way of life, which as we learned last week was really just to worship ourselves and what our flesh wants and put an idol to it. He specifies idols of silver and gold here because those were the party idols. And we're going to see that on full display with a golden calf in chapter 32. He is stamping this out of his people's hearts, drawing them to purity and holiness in him as he is holy. And that's what we have to ask is, what's so deeply embedded in our lives? An idol is anything that you worship above God, and we all have them. And he says, don't put anything else in that position where I belong. Put the idols away. Flee from the idols. Now, the second law there in what we just read was, to build a simple altar for your worship. What can we glean from that? Don't use ornate steps and ornate jewelry. If you make it so fancy, you know what the human heart does. First of all, what he's doing is that's what the pagans did. They made their altars super fancy, and then they worshiped the gods on the altars, and they worshiped the altar themselves. And pure worship doesn't get caught up in, in the luxury. and the you know Sometimes church buildings are built so big and beautiful and new and everything's pristine and worth a lot of money and so you never want to bring any rowdy kids in there or any homeless people in there. You see what is happening? We worship 
the worship center instead of God and his mission. And so we glean from this law right here. We don't apply it as in building an earthen altar, but we apply the principle. Do you understand? So these are laws of worship. And third, with, what's with that last comment that your nakedness be not exposed on it? I knew you wanted to ask. So the pagans built their altar with steps, and there are prostitutes on the steps. And sex is virtually always integrated with pagan worship. And God is purifying this. God's law is for purity. It's for his glory, and that's for our good. So this is where it starts, and we've got a lot more. And it's just rich and rich, so please keep listening. The second set that we come to on our jog through these laws is God's laws of human rights. And the first set of those are concerning slaves, servants, workers. And I'm going to talk about the relationship of those three terms. Let's read the first six verses and pay close attention to these. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave... Okay, note that, we're talking about a he, among the Hebrews, a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons and daughters, the wife and the children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God and shall bring him to the door of the doorpost. And they make it a permanent arrangement. Bore the ear through with an awl. It's like a pierced ear that marks him as his slave forever. This relationship will continue. Now, we don't have, a, have time for a full discussion on this topic, but I'm going to spend a little time on this because this question comes up frequently while studying the Bible and trying to grapple with what's going on. And I want us to all have this understanding today. The question is, why didn't God, right in his law, just abolish slavery forever? That's a question everybody asks, and we need to. And I believe that the answer can help us make sense of the Bible and bring healing to the horrible injustices and abuses in America's history of slavery. Healing which comes only from God's love through the gospel of Jesus Christ, not through other man-made and man-centered solutions, not through socialism, Marxism, or critical race theory which is the big press today, and we're going to talk about those things later this summer. This is a much longer conversation, but a few answers bring clarity to all this. Okay, so here we go. First, remember as we're applying the Bible, we have to, as best as we can, take our lens, our worldview, our experiences, our culture, and put ourselves in what was going on then at the time, the real world then. That's why a trip overseas to developing nations is really helpful for us to see with different eyes outside of our American lens. So this is an ancient time, and here's what we have. The entire world's economy is operated on slavery at that time and for the vast majority of the world history by necessity. And what God's law proclaims to Israel is that your operate, your functioning in an economy in a world of slavery will not, it shall not, it must not look anything like the slavery that you experienced in Egypt. And so he's going to give his law how it's going to be different. 
First, what do I mean that the world operated on slavery by necessity? Historians will tell you that at its best, the middle-class labor market that we have now is virtually the same thing as slavery back then. It's how labor was done and it's how payment was made. The biggest difference, the single biggest difference is room and board. That's a place to live and food to eat. See, we live in a rich society right now. This is our lens. We live in a rich society that has things like labor laws, medical insurance, sick leave, affordable housing, bountiful food, and enough income to afford housing and food. Well, guess what? That's not how the vast majority of the world has lived. We live in this amazing bubble. This middle class has never existed before modern times, and it was developed by the free markets. And aren't we glad? We're glad for that. So with no robust economy, wealth, and safety nets, here's how the world worked in, in the vast majority of history. Selling yourself, and here are, the, here are the two key words, selling yourself voluntarily and temporarily. You can already see how there's, we have two definitions of slavery developing a terrible, horrible one, and we'll, and we'll develop that. But this one that is how the world operated for so long. Voluntary, temporary, you sell yourself into indentured servitude, and that allowed the people, the masses, to live in the ancient world, and some of today's world still, with the ability to work, eat, live somewhere, raise a family, pay off our debts, or even pay off crimes that we've committed. And so it worked at its best. God's law absolutely banned and condemned the type of slavery that we think of today when we picture slavery. The kidnapping of free humans and selling them for use as slaves is absolutely opposed to the fullest measure to God's law, and I'll show you why. The eighth commandment is do not steal. That was understood primarily at that time as a prohibition against stealing human beings. In a little preview of a few verses down the page, we're going to come to verse 16. I just want to pop that up right now because it applies right here. We see, look at this, 21 verse 16. We see the kidnapping of any person is a capital crime and deserves the death penalty. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Do we see God's opinion on slavery? So God's law absolutely bans and condemns and punishes severely what was Egyptian slavery and what was much of the African slave trade and many other times and cultures throughout world history. God's law is healthy and condemns all that's unhealthy and un un unholy. God's law instead offered protection and provisions and demanded respect and kept families together. Now, does the sinful heart of humans warp and take advantage of and break all of God's laws. Yes, it does. And it does for this as well and has been abused at various points, which destroys themselves, others, and, and societies. And that's why the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only solution. All these other man's solutions are stained by the human heart. But when we're following Christ and God's law, that's the only solution. 
and when we treat each other as better than ourselves, when we follow God's laws that he spelled out for us. That brings healing and order and health to the world. And so we love God's law. And God's law, eventually, as we look down into the future of the Old Testament, what's coming, provided for Israel to redeem the institution of slavery, which ultimately led to picturing the redemption of our slavery from sin. Redemption is a slave term, and God uses that through Christ who redeems us from our bondage, our slavery to sin. Jesus sets us free from that. So we have every reason to learn and love God's laws. Well, let's get our slow jaw going again because we've got a lot more to cover. Next, our laws are concerning behavior and liability. Behavior is how to act, and liability is when people act badly and bad things happen. And liability is how to know how to judge uh, when there is bad behavior. Such as, we come to verse 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. And here we have the death penalty. We have capital punishment in verses 12 through 17. Many who are here today or who read, pick up and read the Bible have a hard time with the death penalty, and it's something that we all do have to grapple with and wrestle through, and we're going to be on different places in that. The specific crimes called for it here are murder, as we see in verse 12, and then kidnapping, like we saw already, and then assaulting parents as well. As you work through this ethical issue of capital punishment, make sure, above all else, if I can just make sure of one thing today in this topic, and that is that you see the very key element in all of these laws regarding capital punishment, and that is the value of life, of human life, to God. Human life is more valuable than anything else in creation by far. I mean, God became a human, and the angels long to look at those things, First Peter says. Blows their minds. Humans are valuable because we're image bearers of God. This is why God comes down so hard on carved images because we don't need carving. We are the image. And I'm talking all of human lives. All of them. And human life is so valuable that God says in his law, if you take it, destroy it, disregard it, it costs your life. He's serious. People matter to God that much. Now, that should give you comfort because you know the value of your life to God and how much you matter. And it should also give us a heavy instruction on how we treat other people as well, all other humans, all. They're all important to God. Well, so we're going to jog on. We're jogging. Uh, the laws in verses 18 and 19 help judges then. Remember, they appointed judges. Now they have this law. Uh, make a ruling in a fistfight. Again, two, three million people camping in a hot wilderness. There's going to be some fistfights, I guarantee it. So when that does, here's the law that helps, that gives the examples, that helps the judge make the judgments. God's law draws out the heart behind the crimes, accidental crimes, are softer in penalty than intentional crimes. The punishment must fit the crime. That's justice. God is justice, and he's putting a just society in place. In verses 22 and 23, if that attack, that fight, hits a pregnant woman, 
and the woman gets injured or dies, or her baby gets injured or dies, her unborn baby, which again shows the value of the unborn life to God. It's full human value. The punishment shall match the crime. All these laws about matching the crime, the ancient Romans called this the lex talionis. Maybe you learned that in history class one day. That means the law of retaliation. Verses 23 through 25 are the well-known summary of all of these principles of the law. Verse 23 through 25. If there is harm, then you must pay life for life, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Remember, as we're interpreting the Bible, we go back to that culture, that time. That was a time when big, fancy, secure prisons and rehab centers and elaborate court proceedings, none of that existed. So, but these laws here made it possible to experience all cultures and all times justice. Justice possible. And these laws did not allow rich people to buy their way out of justice through bribes or hiring fancy lawyers. These are holy laws that work. Verses 28 through 32 were about laws to, uh, about injuries to animals. Why is this so relevant? Well, just think about it. It's especially relevant because almost everyone back then farmed and animals were extreme, extremely important to your livelihood. So it's easy to, today just to apply those same laws to automobiles. Most of us have one and, and automobiles today sometimes crash into other automobiles and cause a lot of damage or death. Okay, so we just apply these laws that we're about to look at. We don't have oxen that gore people to death. But we do have cars that can hurt people. So we apply these laws to our lives today. Maybe we have a neighbor's dog that, that bites a guest. Or we have liability insurance in case someone slips on your parking lot in the winter when it's icy. We have these things. And so like the judges back then, we take these laws as examples that they give so we can know right and wrong and how to make judgments, how to discover the heart behind them and apply them to today. And this causes us and our society to thrive. And we need to love God's law. It's a great provision that he gave for us. A nation is developing now with justice that springs from God himself, the source and the author of justice and truth and right. And this is what it looks like. What a gift. So next, on our jog, we come to God's laws of property rights. And the first item of property, of course, are the animals, oxen and donkeys. And this passage introduces a key word, restoration. Verse 33 and 34. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and a, donk, a huckster donkey falls into it, oh, I can't believe I left a pit uncovered. Donkey fell into, fell into it. You can just imagine that, right? That would happen to us. Uh, what does it say? Verse 34, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. So earlier, theft was addressed, and here we have negligence. It's a mistake. We all make mistakes. Sometimes it causes 
pain or loss or trouble. And so just law requires restoration, as it should, as it does. So man, if I borrow, or women, if I borrow your pickup truck to help move something, and I run it into a tree, guess what? I'm paying for that. Because that's what God's law says. Unless you take Jesus' words and outdo one another in showing love and say, I'll go ahead and pay for it, Reg, and I would let you. <laughs> but see what, it, see what God's law offers us. It offers that clarity. Who's responsible? And it helps our relationships stay strong. And here we are as a part of a healthy community that treats each other well and follows these guidelines. And we're healthy. And we're on the same team. And we know how to act and what judgments to make. Love God's law. Don't you love having God's law? Well, next is a popular issue that we like to be prepared for, and that is home invasion. What if someone breaks into your house? God's law speaks to that. Chapter 22, verses 2 and 3. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there should be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So what's going on here? Let me interpret this. We have two judgments here. There's one when there's a home invasion at night and one that there's a home invasion during the day. And you can kind of make sense of this here. Remember how to interpret the Bible. You have to understand what it meant at that time. At that time, there weren't security lights. It was, once it got dark, it was very dark. And so what the law puts into uh, our, our dis ability to discern a case here is if someone breaks into your house at night and you just kill him right away, um, and, and, and if I, it's discovered that he was unarmed, that's okay. You couldn't see it's built into the law. If the morning comes, the daylight comes, someone breaks into your house and you realize he's not armed, he's not very strong, he's not much of a threat, but you kill him anyway, this is a way for the judges to determine there was excess force and then you'd be liable for that excess force. You see what's happening here? These are the same kind of laws we have today and that we operate under today. And God gives us these laws to show us the way to be just and wise and good for humanity. Then, verse 7, if a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, if the thief is found, he shall pay double. Again, not, there's not a big fancy court system and jail system. These are laws to get judgment, justice right away. He shall pay double. These are very helpful examples of running a healthy society. Now, I underline that last part here, he shall pay double, because that statement in this verse is very personal to me. I want to tell you a story. When I was in ninth grade, I went through a very short season of stealing, it was because I hung out with a couple guys who started stealing things. So we, in about a two-week window, we stole a couple things from stores. And then I was in study hall in the library at school in ninth grade. The librarian left the room, and I took $20 from her purse. Okay? Then one of the other guys got caught some other time, and he told everything. <laughs> so I get, I get in trouble, called to the principal's office, which... We don't like that at first, but we're thankful for that in the long run, aren't we? Here's what happened. Got in trouble. Got in trouble with my dad. My dad opened the word, and he came to this verse. 
And he required me to go and apologize to the librarian and pay her back $40. Now, in 1989, to a ninth grader, $40 was a lot of money. And it stung. And it made an impression. And it healed my relationship with her. And like I said, that was a short season of stealing. And it ended right then and right there. And to this day, I love God's law in this verse. And don't we love God's law that brings this wisdom and this healing and these re- this healthy society and these relationships that we have? Love God's law. Well, now we come to some hot ones, social issues, purity and holiness issues. And I want you to see God's character embedded in these laws. That's category number five, God's laws of social holiness. In verses 16 and 17, these relate to, now you have to, again, we're contextualizing with this culture that that we're entering here with the Israelites. Verses 16 and 17 relate to premarital sex and the seventh commandment, no adultery, in a culture of arranged marriages. Can you transition out of your American window and, and enter that society? Okay, let's look at verses 16 and 17. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed, not engaged, and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly, utterly refuses to give her to him, no way, you're not marrying my daughter. He shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. First of all, if this was a rape situation, you know what that judgment is? That's the death penalty because that's an assault on God's daughter. God is serious about his holiness. This is a different case. This was seduction that would have led to some kind of consent, but it had these real effects. That kind of offense stole value from the family in that culture, and it violated the purity of a young lady, which disregarded her worth not only to the family, but also as a daughter of God. And so God's law provides justice on every one of those points. Now, we can apply that to our society today, but that's what it looked like, and that's the justice that it gave in that society at that time. And we draw the principles from that. Verses 18 and 20, keeping our jaw going. Verses 18 and 20 through 20 address major offenses that deserve capital punishment again. In this category, we're back to capital punishment, the death sentence. Who are the guilty parties here? The first two are sorcerers and people having sex with animals. And God, we learned about God's character. He is serious about the holiness of his people. Now, this needs to get our attention in this culture because witchcraft and all kinds of distorted sex acts have become mainstream, accepted, and now beyond accepted, valued and pressed in our society. See the difference between the world in which we live and God's character and his heart, his law, his purity. That makes me think of Harry Potter, adventurous story of honor and friendship or crafty way to inoculate us against the evil of witchcraft. I'm going to let you determine that for yourself. But these are the things we need to watch out for as we learn 
the severity of God's holiness. Sorcerers shall not live. And there's a lot more to be said through Scripture on the evils of witchcraft. It's satanic. And so we need to be careful. I'm just going to let you decide, come to your conclusion and judgment on those kind of cultural, pop culture things. But I'll just tell you, I've seen far too many people over the years pulled in by thinking, oh, yeah, that's okay, it's innocent. And then I've just seen it. It puts out their fire for Christ. I've seen it over and over. So be careful. God's law is good. Verses 21 through 24 shift to a different kind of social holiness and a different kind of death penalty, and that is that God so loves the widow, orphan, and stranger. Let's look at verses 21 through 24. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You, he, he wants us, his people, to treat guests, and we'll talk about that. Verse 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. This is God speaking how severely he loves, has compassion for, protects, and wants us to have the same heart for strangers among us. Widows and orphans. And if, if we, his people, aren't the ones on the forefront of caring for those people, and why did he even save us? This is his law. So we need to be growing in our biblical hospitality, and that is our love for strangers, to give priority in our lives and schedules to take care of strangers. We need to continually involve widows and widowers into our relationships and our lives. Stop being apathetic or just oblivious to who those people are in our, in our church and in our lives, our community, and treat them with the compassion and priority that God does. And the same with orphans, fostering. This is why we launched the Father's Heart Ministry to facilitate everything that we, every opportunity we have to assist fostering and adoption every way possible. Because... May we have God's blessing in that area, not his curse. Amen? Amen. And it's good for us to care for those people. It's good for those people. It's good for the world. It's good for society. It glorifies God. This is God's law. Love it. Verses 25 through 27. Keep jogging. Regard having compassion for the poor. In a similar way, God loves the poor. And I just want to ask you, do you have compassion for the poor. When you see pictures like this, are you filled with compassion? Or are you filled with disgust? Or are you filled with apathy? I don't even think about those people. Well, let me tell you how God thinks about the poor. He wants us to help them, assist them, give justice to the poor. This is being godly. This is never neglecting them or abusing them or else Look at the end of verse 27. If he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. God's law is good for everyone. Everyone wins, including yourselves, when you're being godly. Care for the poor. Verses 28 through 31 are more social holiness commands. We're going to keep jogging. Uh, we're almost to the finish line. Verse 28 is how to act towards leadership. Never uh, revile God's leadership. He's on the throne. 
and then never curse any human ruler. Social holiness calls for respect for authority, not full agreement. And you may not respect the person, but God's law is to respect the position. And as it turns out, that's healthy for your organization, for society, and for you. And it glorifies God. Respect that authority. Verses 29 through 31 gives instruction about giving offerings. And people are just as tempted now as they were then to keep all your money and not give. But God puts it in his law because of two things. One, he knows that it's much better for us, much better for us, if we're the river, conduit of wealth and assets, not the stagnant pond. Plus, that's so it's better for us, provable, empirical, that we gain by being generous. Plus, societies, charities, and churches, and the givers, all thrive when we're giving generously. So he puts it in his law, because it's good. And we love it. The law's in chapter 23, verses, okay, so we're entering chapter 23. There's verses 1 through 3, and then verses 6 through 9. Those tell us not to pervert justice. All right, God is all about justice, and here's how it can be perverted sometimes. And we got to watch out for these things. So let's look at these two sets. Verses 1 and 2. First of all, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not hold hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. It's like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a, um, a false witness because I get something for that. You, verse 2. You shall not fall in with the many who do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. You know how applicable this is? right now. There's this whole, the theory might is right, the, the masses must be right, or the mob mentality. Whatever the case is, you can't side with the masses or the mob because you're intimidated or because they'll reward you. You side with truth, whatever that costs. Oh, how relevant that is today. It's in God's law. No, you side with truth, justice, not the mob, not the masses, Whatever kind of teasing or suffering, persecution that costs you. God's law. Verse 3 says not to side with the poor. Listen to this. And then verse 6, is, six through 9 says don't side with the rich. And you can imagine different scenarios where you might side with the poor or side with the rich. And God says don't think so humanly on either way. You side with the truth. Side with justice. Whatever that case is. Oh, again, how relevant this is. Sandwiched between those verses are verses 4 and 5, which put into God's law what Jesus later commands his people in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, flat out, love your enemies. Now, if you meditate on that one, that's a stinger too. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do you do that right away? Is that really easy? Someone's bothering you. Oh, yeah, I'm going to pray for them. Eh, That's not your first thought. That's Jesus, though. Love your enemy. That's his command. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Here's that same truth, but Old Testament law style. And, of course, that always deals with, includes oxen and donkeys. Let's look at the verses. Verse 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox, underline that word, the enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall what? 
say, ha, 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 so-and-so's donkey's out. That's awesome. (laughs) No, that's what your flesh wants to say. Here's God's way of saying, love your enemy, because this is God's character. You shall do what? You shall bring it back to him. Verse 5, if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shouldn't laugh and feel great. You shall refrain from leaving it with him. You shall rescue it with him. Love your enemies. That's God's law. It's hard, and Jesus shows that only he can do it perfectly. But he lovingly demands that we do it because it brings such healing and such strength. Love God's law. Finally, as our jog nears the end, finish line is within sight. God's laws, category five, is God's laws of special occasions. These are some more ceremonial laws. that we glean a lot from. Again, he repeats the law of the Sabbath day, keeping it holy. That was one of the Ten Commandments. We talked a lot about that last week. It is so important to know that principle. And then, of course, that all of that is fulfilled again in who? Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. The principle, the point being that we find our ultimate rest in Jesus. So he repeats that, but then he adds... The Sabbath year. Keep the Sabbath year holy. That's the seventh year. For the first six years, your crops grow. And then the seventh year, you take that year off. Don't plant any crops. Let the land rest before you plant again. Now, he put that law right in the law of nature. And farmers over all of world history learn this as they plant crops for too many years. The crop gets, the the field, the ground gets tired and stops producing. You have to give it that rest about every seventh year. And that's the way the world is, right? In natural law, until something was invented and developed. So we don't have to do that anymore. Can anybody tell me what that is? Fertilizer. I heard several people say it. I think we have some farmers in this congregation. But we don't need the Sabbath anyway, because like we just said, Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. And I'm not going to draw any more conclusions about fertilizer and and that. So I'll just leave that right there. Pretty fun, though. These are the ceremonial laws. Know the heart behind them. The rest points to Jesus. We're fulfilled in Jesus. We find our rest and peace in Jesus. Then our text ends today, God declaring three feasts as holy ceremonial law. The feasts of unleavened bread, the feast of harvest, the feast of ingathering. I, I have referred to feasts several times. They continued to develop over the um, books of the Old Testament. The feasts were designed to lead to exquisite and enjoyable worship of God. And they're wonderful. It would be great for you to do a feast study and even try to reenact it and enjoy it. But here's the thing. Here's why we don't do those anymore as a church. is because all, like we've said Like I said last week and and before, all of the feasts, it's a great study because Jesus fulfills every part of all of the feasts and the whole feast system. They're all to point to Jesus, his first and his second coming. And so while we don't celebrate the feasts 
unless we want to, to learn our heritage, what Christians do, Jesus gave us to do, and that's baptism, communion, which is our way of enjoying the meal together, enjoying the observance together, enjoying the meaning of, of who God is and all those things. He gave those to be our, our feasts, our acts of worship now in the church. Let's worship God. Let's love his law. Let's get better and better at knowing it and applying it. And let's praise and follow Jesus all the way. For our next step, I just have one today. I encourage everyone to take it together between you and God. It's receive God's love and love his law today. Receive God's love the law is just one way that he's given us so much love, and we need to receive it. All of these laws, the civil, the ceremonial, and moral law, they all point to Jesus. They proclaim Jesus. They lead us to our salvation in Jesus alone, our new spiritual life in Jesus, our new ethic and discernment and thriving in life, our holiness, our happiness, our joy. It's all fulfilled in Jesus. And so receive it. If you haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior from sin, I encourage you to do it today. That's where our salvation is found. Receive his love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then the law teaches us how to live and thrive. And we can join the numerous authors of the Bible who so often proclaim their love for the Lord. Again, all through the Bible, writers, people, prophets, kings, apostles are making this statement. I love the law of God. You know why? Because it's so good for us. It teaches us him, teaches us how to thrive in this world, and we love it. One of those texts is Psalm 19, 7 through 10. And I'm going to ask everybody to stand, and we're going to read that together as we close today. Read this scripture as proclaiming to God your love for him, our love and delight in the law. Okay, Psalm 19, 7 through 10. Go ahead and read this out loud, and then we'll pray. Here we go. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come before your throne right now asking for you to complete the growing of our love for you in our understanding and love and obedience and following the law. We thank you for it. I pray that you will develop every person's here understanding of the law, applying it, being free from error, which causes harm being stronger in our faith, happier, certainly a, a desire of yours for us to be happier, 
wise, more influential in the world, more like Christ. This is our prayer dedication to you. And we thank you for your law and this time together today. We return our worship and praise to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.